of new life and it's been it's been really rich and um, I trust that it is for you as well. Uh, it gives me joy to to introduce uh, John Tyson, our speaker for this afternoon. And uh, he's one of the first things you'll notice is his accent being from Australia. And uh, after first service, in fact, there was, you know, he and I were talking in the lobby and there was this woman named Eartha Brown, who's a Jamaican woman, uh, comes down to us and she go he goes to her, oh, I love your accent. You know, and it was just this Australian and Jamaican and Filipino just having this conversation. And it's just a beautiful picture of church at New Life, you know. And so John is, uh, he's without a doubt, one of the leaders of the body of Christ in New York City. He's the lead pastor of Trinity Grace Church. And the wonderful thing about Trinity Grace Church, it's actually a a family of neighborhood churches, neighborhood congregations. And there are eight of them so far, um, two more to come. And so he's got a lot of time on his hands. And so we said, hey, why don't you come over and be a preacher for us one Sunday since you're not doing anything else? And he graciously said yes. But despite being a leader and a pastor, he's also a friend of ours. He's, he's been here in the past, spoken here in the past. And also, if you recall, during Rich's installation service, uh, John is one of the few individuals that Rich invited to come and speak. So he's a friend of ours and during that transition, especially when we transitioned from Pete to Rich. And so give him a hand, please, as we call to the front John Tyson. Good morning, afternoon, wherever we are. We're in Queens, that's all that matters, people, that's all that matters. But uh, it's good to see you today, thanks so much for having me here, really is always a joy and an honour to be here. Uh, I I love what God's done in your church, Um, God is using the ministry of your church all around the world um, to make the church more beautiful. The church is the place where broken people can bring all of their junk to the table and let God sort it out. And uh, that's like what emotionally healthy stuff is about, actually being transformed to the image of Jesus. And uh, our church has been deeply impacted by the ministry of emotionally uh, healthy stuff. I remember the first emotionally healthy spirituality small group we ever did. It's a total disaster. People are weeping, fighting, yelling, wives walking out of the room yelling at their husbands. It was just glorious. And I just remember thinking, I just remember thinking, man. These people are processing their stuff and we live in a culture that just shove it down or pretend. And uh, to be able to just be honest and believe that grace is more powerful than sin and work through those things has been phenomenal. So thank you to your church from our church for the impact uh, that emotionally healthy spirituality and all of that stuff has had. And I couldn't be more excited about your future. Uh, I think Rich is just uh, a phenomenal man of God. He's obviously an incredibly gifted um, teacher and leader, but uh, he's a good friend. And uh, he is my New York City reading kindred pastor. Where I, I, I'm not sure I've met somebody else that loves to read from a variety of Christian traditions like I have in him. And when there's so much polarization in the body of Christ and theological suspicion, it's great to be around somebody who gets the big picture and uh, to be able to do that. So, again, thank you so much for having me here today. And I have the, the privilege of closing the series on prayer with the little phrase, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And I, I, I hear that you've been praying that at the start of every sermon. So can we just pray the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray before we open up together? And uh, I'll lead us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, as you've been making your way through this prayer, uh, I saw one of the slides that's highlighted different parts of this prayer under different categories. For example, uh, it's about the Father's character, and the Father's kingdom, and the Father's provision, the Father's forgiveness, the Father's guidance, and then last week was on the Father's protection. And I think it's important that we close this week with this theme because you can't end a prayer just asking God to protect you. That sounds a little bit reactionary, doesn't it? All of these incredible things, and then like, deliver us from the evil one, keep us safe. No, that's a little too reactionary. And so it's, I love the way the scriptures frame this up with a little bit of defiance in it. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. So I'd like to frame this up by saying today that this is about the Father's anthem. This is an anthem of victory and declaration spoken at the end of this prayer, wherever you and I have the ability to pray it. Kingdom, power, and glory. Now, whenever you talk about kingdom and power and glory, um, it, it raises eyebrows, doesn't it? It's, it's fine in the church, but they're not seeming themes that we talk about all the time. Nobody will ever go to you and say, hey, how are things going at your job? And you mean, <clears throat> excuse me, you mean my kingdom? <laughs> Nobody would ever say that. Uh, nobody in, in their right mind in a marriage would say, how's your marriage going? Quite well, my wife is getting used to my power as a husband. <laughs> and nobody would certainly say, how's, you know, hey, how's it going in that arts thing that you're working on? Fantastic, I'm receiving more and more glory. <laughs> so I'm really happy about that. We just don't think like that, we don't talk like that. But individual hearts, families, cultures, neighbourhoods, and certainly the city of New York is driven by these themes of kingdom, power, and glory. Uh, you know, planet Earth, um, the, the Earth's core is approximately 50 miles thick, and there's uh, giant tectonic plates, and they, they grind together occasionally. And when they grind together, we have earthquakes, and you feel it on the surface. And I want to submit that kingdoms and power and glory are the tectonic plates underneath human history, and when they confront and clash with one another, we feel it on the surface. We feel it culturally, we feel it in our own lives, we feel it with our children, marriages, society as a whole. So these are important themes. And in fact, when you have a look at um, the ideas of kingdom, power and glory, we realise that these are the big themes of, of the Bible. This is the heart of what's that. So let's jump in together today by talking about what couldn't be any more relevant if it tried. Kingdoms, power and glory. So the first thing is about the idea of the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom. Pete said in his talk on the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, oh, your kingdom come, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that the kingdom is God's dream for the world. The kingdom is God's dream for the world. And that's true, isn't it? That each of us in our hearts, we have a sense that there is a grain to the universe. There's a way that things are supposed to be and that we long for them to be like that. I heard one theologian put it like this. And I think this is a beautiful, emotionally healthy-esque articulation of God's dream for the world. He says, Shalom indicates the well-being of daily existence, the state of the man or woman who lives in harmony with nature, with himself or herself and with God. Concretely, it is blessing, rest, glory, riches, salvation and life. Shalom is human flourishing with God, the creator and redeemer at the centre of our embodied existence, living heartily as complete persons of soul and body in right relationship to God's good creation and to its blessings. Isn't that a beautiful articulation of how God intended life to be? It's rich, it's holistic, it includes ourselves, God, one another, and the created order. 
And we know that that's how God intends for the world to be. And so we have to look around the world and say, well, why isn't it like that? If God's God, what's wrong with the world? And then we realize that God's kingdom is not the only kingdom at play in the world. We know this from the start of the biblical story. The serpent comes along, Satan, and what does he want to do? He wants to take away the authority, and he wants to take away the intimacy, and he wants to take away the relationship that God has with his people. And so he lies to them and then deceives them. And as a result, they are filled with sin, they hide, they're covered with shame, and then another force is unleashed in the world, and it's the kingdom of darkness, it's sin, it's brokenness, it's dysfunction. Theologians call this the antithesis, which means there's another force, another thing in the fabric of the grain of the universe, which is sinful. And we can, we can make sin general and abstract, but we've all felt sin. I look at the issues of abuse. I look at marriages that, that fall apart. I look at broken covenants and trust. I look at dishonesty and greed. I look, look at wounds that are spoken that wound the human heart. And I just go, that is not what God had in mind. Many of you understand the reality because you've been on the receiving end of those things. And you've said, what sort of kingdom and who's in charge and what is this about It's not just the kingdom of God, but there's the kingdom of darkness. It's important to see because, and this is is not a trap that your church falls into, I know. We can often think, well, what God wants is to save our souls and then evacuate us off this horrible planet and get us into some invisible realm somewhere else called heaven later on. We realize that's the opposite direction that the whole of the Bible is moving in. The Bible starts on planet Earth and it ends on planet Earth. I'm sure you're aware of that, but you read the narrative. We're not going anywhere God's about bringing his kingdom here. And so the enemy wants authority. The enemy wants power. He wants dominion. He wants glory on the earth. Have a look at this conversation with Jesus and the devil in Luke chapter 4. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So Satan doesn't say, all the souls of people are mine and I'll give them to you. He's talking about kingdoms. He's talking about glory. He's talking about authority. He's talking about splendor. And so what the enemy has and what Jesus came to do is to reclaim the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, I want to be careful here to articulate this. God never lost his authority, but we lost ours. Jesus came as the second Adam, not to get God's authority back, but to get our authority back. He did everything right that Adam did wrong. And therefore, we no longer have to live under the curse of Adam's sin, but we live under the blessings of Christ's righteousness. When Jesus died, died for our sin and then rose again, he was victorious. And his message was, all authority on heaven and earth now belongs to me, so go and make disciples. Discipleship is not just about dumping content from one head to another. It's about authority to rule and reign, to bless and unleash a kingdom on the earth. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. It no longer belongs to the enemy. The thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. And Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. And so the kingdom of God uh, is not a passive matter, which means you can't just go, well, one day I'm sure God's going to do his thing. He's sovereign and all that, you know, so God, you just do your thing and then I'll do my thing and see you in heaven. That's not the Christian life. That's not the way that God wants it. Yet often there's a fatalism that creeps into our faith. No, we are called to press into what God has. In fact, Jesus said this. He said, the strong man has now been bound and you're free to plunder. 
And that's what Jesus is doing in the world. He's walking around, plundering the kingdom of darkness and establishing his kingdom of life. Uh, This is how um, one prophecy about the ministry of Jesus describes it. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And when Jesus stands up in Luke chapter 4, And he gives his first sermon as the Messiah. What are you about, Jesus? What's your manifesto? What kingdom are you bringing? Jesus quotes this passage in Isaiah. And there's a slide there listing it out. If we can go to that. Have a look at all of the things that mark and define the kingdom of God. This is what it says. A couple slides more. This is what it says. He shall, talking about the kingdom of God, bring good news to the poor. He shall bind up the brokenhearted. Bring liberty to the captives. Release from prison those bound inside. Usher in the year of the Lord's favour. He shall comfort those who mourn, give beauty for ashes, give joy for mourning, and a spirit of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. And so that's what the kingdom of God is like. Often people say, well, we don't need God in religion anymore in the public square. We don't need God in politics or anything. I'm like, this looks exactly like what we need in the world. We need people set free from brokenness and addiction. We need healing and joy. We need oppression gone. We need the spirit of heaviness that covers people gone so that people can live and thrive. This looks exactly like the kind of world that we're working to build. But then he says this, they shall. And that's talking about the citizens of the kingdom. Once God has done this for for us, he begins to do it through us. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastation. They shall repair the ruined cities. And they shall repair the devastation of many generations. Amen. Beautiful. That's what should define the activities of the church. When um, I first started building a relationship with Pastor Richie, I came out here and he gave me a tour of the building and I came in this room and uh, it's impressive. It's a big balcony, high in the balcony. And... Uh, it's a lovely room and it was, there's all these different floors and he was just walking me through explaining all the programs that run in here. And I, I, was, I had a little, I've got to confess, it's okay you confess in church, I had a little bit of pastor envy for your building. I was like, oh gee, if I could just get a few of these in Manhattan, what, what? Anyway, so he brings me out the back and he starts, he starts walking me around the CDC. Uh, and he just started sharing stories. What happens in this room? What happens in this room? This is the way we help people. This is the way we bless the poor. This is the way we demonstrate the love of Jesus. And I realised that Isaiah 61 and Luke chapter 4 weren't just things Jesus did thousands of years ago, that they were the current reality on Queens Boulevard in New York City, that the kingdom of God is advancing. And it's it's happening for you and in you and through you. And I remember thinking of all the things I saw, I thought that just looks so much like the stuff Jesus would be doing if he was here. N.T. Wright says this, the call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. The cross is not just an example to be followed, it's an achievement to be worked out, put into practice. 
It's what God now wants to do by his spirit in the world through his people. And so that means that God's got you where you are because he wants you to be about these things, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know, the scripture never says that we should try and grow the church. Jesus builds the church, we seek the kingdom. And so as we seek the kingdom of God, we see the city transformed in the lives around it. But I want to be clear about this. This is not a passive matter. We live in very contested space. People spend millions and sometimes billions of dollars over the course of time trying to lure your affection, build brand loyalty with you. There's a gospel of fashion, there's a gospel of finance, there's a gospel of everything in New York. And there's competition for who you'll be loyal to. And so we want to be the people who, in the midst of the brokenness and despair of the world, plant the flag of loyalty to Jesus and declare his kingdom. I've got a picture up here. It's a picture of, um, from Kiev. Have you been following the, the absolute national disaster that's happening there with the riots? Absolutely heartbreaking. And this picture came out. And I just thought, oh man, this is such a beautiful picture of what people in the kingdom of God do. Between two rioting forces... A little group of priests are standing there with a cross going, there's another way. There's another way. Blessed are the peacemakers. For what will they be called? Children of God. Because God is the one who makes peace out of his enemies. And I just saw this picture and I just thought, that is such a prophetic picture of what we're called to be. In your neighbourhood, with your children, in your family, in your workplace, you're the one that gets in the middle in Jesus' name for God's kingdom so that his will ends up being done. Maybe this doesn't do it for you. Next slide. Maybe you like graffiti, so I've put Banksy in, which is always, I feel, appropriate. And uh, this is Banksy, who's a famous graffiti artist. He recently did a little campaign in New York that was hilarious. But I've always loved this one here because I think it gets to the spirit of peacemaking, of kingdom building, which is, there's an attitude to that. That's not passivity. But what's he doing? He's unleashing heaven. He's throwing flowers. And I feel like that's a, I mean, that's a strong masked man there. And that man has a cause, but the cause is love. And so the world has nothing to fear from the church. The church is good news because we're not trying to control the world. We're trying to set it free. We're not trying to bind the world up. We're trying to liberate it. We're not trying to legislate morality. We're trying to usher in a kingdom of grace. And so this is who we're called to be, those who seek the kingdom of God first. Yours is the kingdom. The second one here. Yours is the power. Romans 1.16, the go-to verse. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We live in a city that is one of the, people continually talked about, most powerful cities in the world. New York is a city of power. It's a power centre. You think about all the forces that, that work here. And they, they conspire together, all of the power that's in New York. Yet, in spite of the fact that we have the UN headquarters here, the world is still a disaster. And here's the problem with the power as the world uses it. For the world, power is always external and it's imposed. It's external and it's imposed. And uh, you look at the, the, the limitations of the UN. They can only go where they're invited. Which means they can't really do that much. They only go, they're very, very limited. Well, you can, we, people, um, I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you saw the whole world saw, Occupy Wall Street, all this disgrace and anger. And so one side you've got, you know, the 1% making all the money. Well, I'm sure there's a 1% here, bless you and grace to you, just in case. But uh, 
you got the 1% that's here, you know, and then uh, you've got the, the, the 99% and there's a giant war between them. And I just realised, you know, even if the 1% gave all of their money to the 99%, you know what would happen? The 99% would just look more like the 1%. Because they wouldn't change their heart. You can put as many restrictions and legislations in Wall Street as you want. You can make the game fair, but it doesn't change the heart of the player. And what we need is renewed hearts. I'm all for good government. It's better than bad government. But it's very, very limited. You cannot legislate love. You cannot transform a human heart through pressure or force. There has to be a greater power that's released. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says this, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And this is why the gospel is good news, because it, it bleeds and leaks through and infiltrates all of the external realities to get to the core. It's not about the external, it's about the internal. It's not about methods, it's about changing people's motives. It's not about techniques, but it's about genuine transformation, as evidenced by that beautiful story. And the, the power of the love of God to transform the human heart is incredible. Now, this is, a, this is a grace-based church, isn't it? Yep. Good. I want to share a little story with you. I haven't always been a Christian, and before I was a Christian, I was running hard away from God. I could sense the hound of heaven. That's an old Pentecostal term. I could sense the hound of heaven nipping at my heels. I'm like, get out of there. In high school, um, this is going to sound kind of crazy, but in high school, I, was, I just loved violence. I loved fighting. I loved all, you know, like, MMA wasn't invented, thank goodness, right, back then. Every week, one group of friends that I was a part of organized a fight with another group of friends, with, with our enemies. There was a group of friends, two of friends. And every week, every Friday, one of us would have to fight one of them. And there was this whole ritual, you'd walk up, it was behind the shed, we'd walk up to it and there'd be like a lot of talk, and then the two people who were going to fight would emerge and you just have these crazy fights and then until one person basically tapped out or beaten up on the floor or whatever and then the groups would go off and we just basically had these arch enemies. And I had this nemesis, there was this kid that I just, as, as strong as I could feel at that age, I hated this kid. One day I was on my own and I had to go back, I think, to get some homework from my locker at school and I'm walking across the soccer field and I'm on my own, nobody else is around and I see in the distance this kid. <laughs> nobody else is there, like an old slow western. It's like, -na -na -na, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> this guy's coming straight for me. And this kid had glasses. And I remember thinking to myself, because you know if you have glasses and you're a kid and you break them, how much trouble you get in with your parents? I just remember thinking to myself, I'm going to smash this kid's head in and my goal was to break his glasses. So this kid comes at me, there's a bunch of yelling and blah, 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 we get in this massive fight. The last thing I remember him seeing was him carrying his broken glasses home. And I just remember thinking in my heart, filled with pride and anger, sucked in you, loser. Mess with me again. Come on. You know, just all this stuff going through my heart. A few months later, I became a Christian, quite against my will, it seemed. And uh, he obviously wasn't a Christian. One night I'm at this Christian youth rally and I look across the room. I'm like, I think, is that my nemesis? It's my nemesis, it's this Christian youth thing. I'm a Christian. Maybe he's become a Christian. And I couldn't come over and it was like a concert thing and I forgot about it. And then another time, just a little while later, I had to go back to school again and as I'm walking across the Oval, same scene like a deja vu, it's me coming against him, 
But this time I see him. Instead of like tensing up and getting angry, I just begin to smile. And I walk up to this guy and I'm like, hey man. And he's like, hey. I'm like, are you a Christian? <laughs> he's like, yeah, I'm like, I'm a Christian too. I'm like, I'm so, I'm so sorry about that. And he goes, oh, don't worry about it. And we had this awkward man hug. Australians are not. So we had this in the middle of the. We walked home. Now, that may just sound like a story from my childhood, but I've got to tell you, my heart was completely transformed by the love of God. And I was sitting there looking at this guy. I was sitting there looking at this guy and I was just thinking, what sort of power is this? What sort of power can make me feel completely differently about another person? And I remember just thinking to myself, oh, wow. The power of God. We need a little bit more of that in the world. That's the only power that can change the human heart. And even as a teenager, in seed form, I just thought, man, if this has, done this, this has changed my life as a teenager, I wonder what would happen if there was a revival or something where this just happened to everybody. What sort of world would that look What would that be like? And so we have to acknowledge and believe in and cry out and declare that the only power that can transform the human heart in unconventional and compelling ways, is the power of God. And it's also very, very encouraging to realise that there is no heart so hard, no sin so great, no person so far away that the love of God can't reach them. When every human institution, when every human law, when every human option shuts down, the power of God can come in. And so we have to call for the power of God. We have to hunger for it, love and, and, and ache that it would be released in our city. David Nagel says this, and I love this. He says, one of, the, one of the primary purposes of the gospel is the reordering of our deepest loves and affections. It gives us new purposes and desires for our lives in the world, here and now. And he says, our disordered loves are displaced by reordered love. And he says, this reordered love implanted in a transformed heart is the distinctive mark of the Christian. And God has a supernatural capacity to reorder us internally, to do surging on our spirits and our souls, to make us people who look, love, think, feel and act like Jesus himself. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and then this, yours is the glory. Now, a lot of times glory, you know, like glory is about the most trite Christian word, isn't it? Glory to God. Hey, glory to God. Give the glory to God. Glory, you know, I mean, we just we sing about it, we clap about it, we high five, we scold out, we guilt our children into caring more about the glory of God. What is glory? I'm sure you know this, the Hebrew word kibbot, it literally means weighty or heavy. You know, like, so an example perhaps would be maybe there was a celebrity who came to church tonight, maybe the one from The Walking Dead with the dreads with the sword, perhaps, I don't know, anyway. And, uh, and everybody, everybody would say, because that happened at your church, I don't know if you know that. Anyway. It's just trying to connect, peeps. All right. Imagine someone from the Knicks comes in, and uh, and everyone's like, "Oh, you know who that is?" Oh, 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 oh. Everybody else would be in the room, but that name would carry weight. Of all the names that exist in the world, of all the kings that exist, of all the people that get excited about what we want when it comes to God, we want Him to get the glory. We want Him to be like, "You mean Jesus?" The, the God-man who left heaven to become one of us, to redeem. I mean, we want there to be weight connected to the glory of God. It's important. Now, we as human beings are glory 
chases. We are hungry for glory. This city, in New York, it's a city where if you're not from here, uh, and you have to move here, which is, you know, unfortunate, because if you're from here, you're the true New Yorker. Everybody else is just like, you know, a transplant or whatever, a locust or whatever, right? But forgive me, I just consider myself an immigrant. But here we are. And uh, whenever I meet people in, in, in Manhattan, I'm talking to them like, oh, why did you move to New York? Like, oh, what are you here to do? I want to be on Broadway. You weren't happy with musical theatre uh, at your small local impoverished uh, community theatre centre? No, Broadway. Broadway. What's your vision on Broadway? Well, what I'd like to do is just basically be a fill-in. I'd love to be in the supporting cast, uh, back away from the centre stage without much attention. I'd just love to make everybody else look good. That conversation's never happened. I've never met somebody who's like, what, what are you here, man? I'm here on Wall Street. Why? Well, I just want to make a modest, sustainable living so I can support myself and then give generously to missions and then just basically care about others with my resources. <laughs> that, that one hasn't happened for me either yet. People want Glory. They want to be the wolf of Wall Street, not the lamb of Wall Street. People in New York, they want to be the star. That's the nature, that's the ambition that drives the whole city. And there's nothing wrong with that because we were created for glory if it's proportionate. I want to, I want to, give you, I want to bring Augustine to the table now, right? So I'm going to need you to concentrate a little bit. This quote, I think, is this little series of quotes, I think, is the, is the best articulation of why glory is a good thing and why it has to be ordered properly. Listen to this. According to Augustine, there is a scale of value stretching from earthly to heavenly realities, from the visible to the invisible, and the inequality between these goods makes possible the existence of them all. So there's a scale of what matters most. God is one thing. Angels are another thing. As are people, terriers, red oaks, squash, rocks, and dirt. These are all created things, you see. Each fits into God's overall scheme of creation. The nature of things in hierarchy is unchangeable, and so is the kind of satisfaction it can provide when we are related to it through love. Because of these actual differences in things, the outcome of loving each actual thing will be different. There is a divinely designed fit between our needs, the character of the things that can satisfy them, and the way we should love them in order to be satisfied. Even though each thing God made is good, delightful, legitimate, and a source of satisfaction as an object of our love, we must not expect more from it than its unique nature can provide. We must give love and praise to things apportioned to their worth. Problems don't arise because we need things or because we love things or because of the things themselves that we love and need. Problems arise when we fail to grasp the nature of the objects that we need and love, the manner in which we love them, and the expectations we have regarding the outcome of our love. Now that is profound. It basically says what's wrong with our society is that we have mixed up the weight of glory and value in things. And so we are expecting from things that which they cannot deliver because they were never created to do so. This, I think, is in some sense the only way to explain the dysfunction of a city like ours, so much hunger, so much ambition, whether you're in the ghetto and you're hustling to get out or you are one of the lords of Wall Street, you're trying to increase your span. Whatever it is, we look at this and we go, things are out of order. Things are out of order and therefore 
We are perpetually dissatisfied. We are over-promised to and radically under-delivered. We are stuffing our souls and yet our souls are lean. Why is this happening to us? Because we've taken God out of the equation. C.S. Lewis says this, God made us, invented us, as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, that's gas, cross-cultural translation. (laughs) And it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There's no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's simply not there. If you've ever woken up in bed with a wrong person thinking that great sex will fix your life and you wake up and you go, dear God, what have I done? This has not delivered what our culture promises. You ever got enough money and you finally get some money? Maybe it could be something that's like, I just want this lazy boy, man. If I just get my chair to watch the game, I'm set. Or if it's a house in the hand, whatever it is, and you get it, and then you just kind of realize, there's not enough glory in this for the thing that my soul longs for. Like, it's good, but it's just not that good. This is the story of our whole society. And that's why... We need to take our longings and passion and hunger for glory and then point it to God who created us and knows us and can fully satisfy us. Just give you a little reminder from the Psalms. In your presence is fullness of joy and there are pleasures forevermore at your right hand. And so that's what we're created for. Why do we love and enjoy lesser things when an infinite feast is offered to us? And so we want to be the kinds of people who say, no, it's your glory, God. As beautiful as she is, she's, they may call her a goddess, but she's not really. She's just hot. God is God. And he may be an athlete and he may be like a demigod on the field and he's a great athlete, but he's not a god. He's a good athlete. We need to get things in proportion. And when we do, life will make sense. Things will be ordered. Society will be repaired. Human hearts will flourish. And the world will be as we long. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power, and then yours is the glory. Now, how do these things come together for the church? How does the kingdom of God and the power of God and the glory of God come together? I want to share a story with you that I think illustrates the way you and I are called called to live this out in a city like New York. And it's a story from the book Rumors of Another World by by Philip Yancey. He tells the story in this book uh, about a young British officer named Ernest Gordon who was taken uh, captive during World War II. And we're familiar, I think, a little bit more with uh, what happened in Europe and what happened with the Jews in concentration camps. We're a little less familiar with what happened in the Pacific. And uh, you had British, a whole uh, section of soldiers who were captured by the Japanese. The Japanese at the time were... uh, They just refused to surrender. They lived in a culture of shame and they lived in a culture of honour and there was nothing more dishonourable than being captured and failing in your mission. So when they actually captured people who had failed in their mission, they didn't treat them as people, they treated them as less than people. They defied the Geneva Convention and they were just disgusted at them. And so Ernest Gordon, this young soldier, um, this young officer who was taken captive, was sent to build the Burma-Siam Railway. And it was horrific. It was through the the heat. It was through the jungle. It was absolutely oppressive. This is in Thailand. And uh, they were getting ready for a potential invasion of India. 120 degree conditions. Uh, Men men working just in strips of cloth, dropping like flies. 80,000 men died in total building this ill-fated railroad. Uh, Gordon himself, this particular officer, he got sick and he almost died. 
They said life in that prison camp was hell on earth. It was like hell on earth had been released. It was like Satan was getting his way and everybody was using their power for their own glory to survive. People would steal from one another. People would take advantage of one another. It was just selfishness and hate with the ethos of the camp. Then one day something happened. One of the returning work crews had to present their shovels that they'd been digging. And what they realized, they were one shovel short. So one of the the enemies comes, uh, one of the uh, Japanese soldiers comes forward and he says, where's the missing shovel? He says, are you planning to escape? They said, no, 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 we don't know where it is. Nobody's taken it. And he said, if you don't say where that shovel is right now, I'm going to begin killing every one of you. All of you are going to die. And so one man steps forward. And the man who stepped forward was a man who'd been a Christian. One of his favorite verses was this verse, no greater love is any man than this, and he lays down his life for his friends. So he steps forward, and in front of the whole group, the soldier beats him to death. They carry his body back to the camp. When they get back to the camp, they recount the shovels, and they realize that the soldier who was inventorying the work had simply miscounted. All of the shovels were there. So this guy had given his life on behalf of others in an act of love. And he said that one heroic act of self-sacrifice and love completely transformed the camp. Everybody realized that there wasn't just forces of hate and survival at work in the camp, but now a new, because of a sacrifice, a new force of love had been released in the camp. People began to care for one another. People began to share their food, share their possessions. And the whole ethos of the camp began to change. And this is what Gordon recalls in his diary. Death was still with us, no doubt about that, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that make for life and death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness and pride were anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity and creative faith on the other hand were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. These were the gifts of God to men. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God has not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life of fellowship. So they began to realize, even though they were in these horrific conditions, that because of a sacrificial act of love, a new spirit had been released, and there wasn't just the kingdom of darkness, but the kingdom of love was at hand. And so they looked around and they began to survey all of the talents and all of the gifts and the education of everybody who was in the prison camp, and they realized that they basically had an Ivy League prison camp. They began to put together a little thing they called Jungle University to educate those who didn't have as good an education. Artists began to perform. All of these things come together. He said, in Jungle University, they taught taught classes on philosophy and ethics. The university soon offers courses in history, philosophy, economics, math, natural science, and at least nine languages, including Latin, Greek, Russian, and Sanskrit. They built a church as a sacred place for worship. They made their own paint and paintbrushes out of things they found in the jungle, and they started an art gallery with curated showings for the Japanese soldiers. They made instruments from the reeds they found in the wood, and they performed Mozart, and they had ballets, opera, and musical theatre shows that they put on for those who were holding them in bondage. And when they were finally liberated and released, they treated the guards who had tortured and brutalised them with kindness and in an official ceremony in Jesus' name forgave them. And then Yancey concludes the story. Yancey concludes the story by saying this, perhaps something like this was what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to his favourite topic, the kingdom of God. In the soil of this violent, disordered world, an alternative community may take root. 
It lives in a hope of a day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumours, but planting settlements in advance of that coming reign. And did you know that your church right here, Queen's Boulevard, your church right here is one of those settlements that God has brought together in advance of the realised coming reign of God. What could your church be in the world if all of the gifts, all of the talents, all of the passions were brought together? If you had hearts that cared about God's kingdom, not your own kingdom, you relied on God's power, not human's power, and you did it for God's glory, not your own, what could this church be in this city? What we want to be, more than anything, is a compelling preview. A compelling preview. You know when you go to the movies, maybe you go to the movies with your girl, sitting there, get there early because I just can't stand a bad seat, period. It's got to be front on, no side angles, no up, I'm, I'm there. Which means you see all the previews and just some, you know, you can almost tell by the soundtrack and the actors, but here comes a romantic comedy. I can just feel my wife's spirit lifting. Ah, you know, I can feel it lifting. And she's like, oh, we're going to go see that. We've got to see that. I'm just, as I'm thinking to myself, I am not seeing that. <laughs> I take my son and they show some horrible techno soundtrack, CGI, maxed out space thing. And my son's like, you've got to take me to see that. The church on earth is the preview where the kingdom of God, the power of God, and the glory of God are manifest, so that the world, when they encounter us, says, what is that? I've got to see that. I've got to be a part of that. And that's what your church is, and that's what we're called to be in this city. And so we come together and we gather, not just to pray empty prayers. Listen, the Muslims pray five times a day. It's not about just getting more words out or being more disciplined. It's about praying the right way to the right God, and this is the key that Jesus has given us. And so when we pray, we are unleashing a new reality into the dysfunction and disorder of the world. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. So Karl Barth, this is my closing quote, Karl Barth says this, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. We pray and it is a tool. We pray and it is a protest. We pray and it is allegiance. We pray and it unleashes heaven. And so you've studied prayer. Now the question is, will we live these lives of prayer? So I want to invite the worship team to come forward. And uh, we're going to close this series out and this gathering together in a time of just worship and surrender to God. I'm not sure where you are. I'm not sure the circumstances that you walked out of to walk into this room. But I know this, God wants to meet you. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven's among you. Don't say it's over here or it's over there. The kingdom of God's among you. Jesus said, take heart, little flock. It is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You can't earn this stuff. This is a gift of grace. And so why don't we stand together and in response to God, let's just sing these songs as our anthem of resistance and renewal and pushback and hope that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power and yours is the glory.